This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, and get sponsor. My co-host, Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. He is off today, but please note, emergency representative for Foresight Fund Services, Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products. These are guests of their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We've got one guest in the studio with us for the hour today, Morgan Housel, partner at the Collaborative Fund. Morgan, welcome to Philadelphia. Welcome to Wharton. Thanks for having me. It is uh, great to have you here with us for the full show. Um, you do a lot of writing, a lot of commenting, um, and sort of as a path to the Collaborative Fund, I want to just sort of talk about your background, get people to sort of hear your interesting path in the industry. So maybe sort of tell us, tell us how you got started, what you liked studying growing up, and how you got into sort of writing as a starting point. Yeah. Well, my background has a lot of, and I think this is true for most people, a lot of kind of accidents, a lot of like walk through a lot of doors that I had no idea where it was going to lead, lead to. Just a lot, of, like no, none of this was planned. I think that's true for most people. But I think like where I start with my background is I, I grew up in Lake Tahoe, California, and I was a competitive ski racer. I was on the Squaw Valley ski team for you know, my whole uh, my whole teenage years. And like every kind of teenage athlete, you think you're going to be a professional in that sport. That's that's your dream. That's why you're doing it. Uh, for, for for ski racing, if you're not if you're not maybe top five in the country by the time you're 18 or so, you're you're done. You don't know it at that point. You don't think it at that point. But that's effectively how it works. So so I grew up ski racing. That was my whole childhood. And um, two things happened. Uh, in ski racing. One was uh, when we were 17 to, there was about 10 of us that grew up ski racing together. We were with, with each other seven days a week, 12 months a year. Two of them died in an avalanche wow. in, in Tahoe when we were 17. And then a couple months later, I broke my back skiing. So that was, that was, the, that was actually what got me from, okay, I think I'm not going to be a professional skier. I need to go figure out something else to do. And I really didn't know what to do. I was 19 at this point, so I, I hadn't started college. I did a really untraditional high school program because I was ski racing where I basically did uh, a self-study program that was designed for juvenile delinquents who got expelled from normal high school. Uh, myself and my, and my friends did it so that we could ski six days a week. But it, it was effectively like if you could – when I was 16, I took a series of tests that were like – can you spell your name and add single digit numbers? Like, okay, here's a quote unquote diploma for you. So, I, I mean, I really didn't have much high school background, education background either. And I didn't start college until I was 21 years old. So I had a very different kind of start than other people. And I really didn't start reading at all. Forget reading about investments. I didn't start reading books until I was 21, something like that. Um, but I really just got into, I, I really got interested in investing pretty early on. And I wouldn't even say investing in stocks, I just got excited about the idea of compounding or just earning money from doing nothing. And I've, I've told the story before of when I was 18, I scraped together $1,000 
from work and I went to the local Bank of America branch and I said, I want to put this in a CD. And I don't know if I knew what a CD was. I think my dad probably told me like that's this is a savings product. And so I put a thousand bucks in a CD. It, it yielded 1%. And I still didn't, I don't think I really knew what that meant or what that would do. And I remember a week later, I logged onto my bank account and the balance went from a thousand dollars to a thousand dollars and three cents. And I just remember sitting there looking at that three cents and thinking like, I didn't do anything for the, someone just gave me that. Like, that was the moment that it was like, I'm really interested in investing. And from there, it just kind of grew into uh, reading more investing books. Uh, funny story, one of the f- one of the early books that I read was Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel. And I, what book. I loved, it's, it's an okay book. And what I loved about the book, though, is that every page is filled with charts and tables. It's very visual. And for someone who is, you know, obviously that book is highly relevant, and I think targeted towards professionals. But for someone like me, who really didn't know anything about investing, books that had to do with uh, theories and formulas, I didn't really get. But a chart that went up and to the right, I, I could understand. So Stocks for the Long Run was one of the first books that I read that really fundamentally changed how I thought about investing or just kind of built a base for how I think about investing. And funny story, at the end of the book, I remember I went back and read the, uh, the, the, the preface of the book and it talked about all this data in the book. And Jeremy Siegel says, you know, one of the main, uh, main contributors who I couldn't have done the book at, without was, was, uh, was Jeremy Schwartz. And I remember thinking, this Jeremy Schwartz guy must be so smart. And years, years later when I met you, I was writing for the Wall Street Journal. I used you as a source in a piece. I remember when we had our first phone call, I remember thinking, wow, this is the Jeremy Schwartz. So that was, you know, that, that, was, that, was, an early, down there. <laughs> that was a, that was an early kind of introduction to investing. And it went from there, just, just learning, reading about uh, markets, about investing. I think like a lot of people, I had an early Warren Buffett bug yeah. because he's so relatable. You can, even without much experience or knowledge or understanding, you can read his story, read his book, you know, books about him and understand his philosophy. So that was really, um, you know, that was another just kind of shift in my direction of thought. And then in college, I, my plan A, B, and C was to go into investment banking. This is like the mid to late 2000s where investment banking was really popular. That was what everyone, everyone wanted to do. Everyone at Warren went to investment banking. Everyone I, wanted I mean, to do it. To and it was like, that was like I remember when I was in crazy. college, <clears throat> like real world investment bankers were like rock stars to me. Like I couldn't believe it. Like, wow, I get to talk to an investor. It, it was just like it had this mythical status. And, you know, it had this idea of you can make a lot of money, you have all this power. So that's what I wanted to do. And then my junior year, I got an internship in investment banking and like day one realized this isn't for me. This is not what I want to do. Just philosophically, like how I like to learn and think, this is like so far removed from what I want to do. And that was kind of a crisis. Like, what do I do next? Um, and then I got a job in private equity, which I, I really liked. I really liked private equity. This is an internship. I'm still in college. And, but this was summer of 2007. And it was like overnight, the world started imploding. Um, I think for in the public's view, it was really 2008 that things got really bad. But for debt markets, credit markets, which private equity really rely on, summer of 2007, August 2007, it was literally overnight. Like on Friday, the markets were clean. You could go out and raise a bunch of money, borrow a lot of money. And Monday morning, it was like, snap your fingers. It's The spigot is off. Mm. So that freaked a lot of people out. And as a junior, I, I, my plan was after I graduated, I was going to stay on as a full-time analyst. Um, but they said, look, markets, we were losing deals left and right. Companies that we own were doing really poorly. Um, so I needed to do something else. And I had a friend who was a writer for The Motley Fool at the time. 
and he said, um, hey, you're looking for a job. You're interested in investing. Why don't you come write about investments? And I had no writing background, which kind of harkens back to my lack of high school days. I majored in economics in college where I didn't you know, really have to write that much. It's kind yeah. of math-based. So I really didn't have any idea or even interest that I would be a writer. But I started doing it. I thought maybe I'll do this for three months before I find another job. But I became a writer for The Motley Fool in uh, October 2007 and ended up staying for uh, about 10 years. And it, it took me a couple years to really enjoy the process of writing. It wasn't, it wasn't obvious early on that I would enjoy it. But after a couple years of doing it, it just became – it just kind of gets ingrained in your soul. And it's just really what I love doing. I love thinking about uh, history and risk and psychology and how investors think about risk and just kind of creating a narrative around that. So that's what I've been that's, – that's what my career has turned into yeah. by pure accident is just kind of writing about investing risk. And it's clear – you know, I think – you know, you talk about Siegel and one of the reasons why I think he's a, a popular professor here is just the passion and how much he enjoys actually teaching just oozes off every time you put him in front of a room and you can just tell he lives and breathes and dies by these charts and explaining You can't charts. fake that stuff. And you can see that in your writing, right? You can tell when somebody really just loves putting this stuff together because, you, you know, it comes out on the pages. Don't ever tell – my bosses, but I would I would do this for free. No one has to be like I love doing get, this. Get him off the air. Don't, don't listen. I, I just I love doing this, and it, there's always that that thing of like what what would your retirement look like? I'm like my retirement would be like I my, my dream retirement. I'd wake up, I'd do a little reading, I'd do a little writing. It's like that's what I that's what, that's I, what do I do now. today. So once you find that, you no matter what it is, like like that's when it's there's no more work. So I I want to go back to how you started. Actually, I mean we both actually have some. I have a, two young girls. And, and you think about the compounding that you talked about. And I'm sort of curious in your own personal story on this hardcore skiing. Like, was that all internally motivated? Was your parents directionally on this? How do you think about now raising your own children, compounding their long-term futures? Are you going to have a push in any way? Do they have to yeah. pick it up? How, do they, how does that happen for you? I, there was no push whatsoever, including my decision to not, you know, had a very untraditional high school background. Most parents, that was my idea to do that program. I went to my parents and I said, this is what my friends are doing and I want to do it too. And when I look back, my parents easily could have said no. Like the most reasonable thing in the world would, would have been for them to say, you need to go to high school. Yeah. <laughs> like that seems pretty <laughs> obvious, right? But they didn't. They said like, this is what you want to do. My parents have very untraditional backgrounds as well. Yeah. My dad started his undergraduate college when he was 32, with three kids um, and became a doctor in his mid forties. And my parents met on a hippie commune in the 70s. Like they have a very different untraditional background as well, which I think for their own kids made them much more lenient to be like, oh, this is what you want to do. Just go give it a shot. And also not starting college at 18, like most people. There was never any any talk of like, hey, you need to go figure your life out. Never. It was nothing like that. So it was very hands-off. And so your question is, would I do that for my kids? I think so. But it's also, there's a lot of risk in there. Once you become a parent, My brother and sister and I turned out okay for the most part but it, that could, it could have gone in a very different direction i think your job as a parent is to you know is to not take the path of least resistance your job as a parent is to steer in the appropriate direction so even though it worked out it's a risky strategy and so one of your posts you actually wrote about sort of this writing a letter to your it was it a son or a daughter a son a son yeah um and so what are some of the and, and, and what, what are some of the piece of advice you gave yeah him? so I, I wrote a letter to my son um, I, I wrote it like a week before he was born. I published it like an hour after he was born. Like fin- it, was, it was called Financial Advice for My Son. And I just thought about what are like the five most important topics that I've 
learned up until that point that I would want to instill on him when he gets old enough to think about this stuff. And a few of them were, you know, one was the idea that if we're talking about monetary success, individual monetary success, don't believe that all success is earned and all failure is is earned as well. Like there's so much, like luck and risk are the opposite sides of the same coin. And you can't believe in uh, in bad luck without believing in good luck too. So you see someone who's really successful, it's so tempting to think that that person is brilliant and insightful and had a major contribution in the world or vice versa. See a homeless person on the street and think that person screwed up, is not driven. And I, I just think there's so much that we, it's so easy to underestimate the, the role of risk and luck in life. And that so much of what of your success is based on the experiences that you've had in life and the people that you've met, the influential people that you've met in your life. And both of those things are 90% outside of your control. And then so, you know, my, my takeaway advice for him was be careful about judging other people, including yourself, based on their economic success on its own. I mean, I struggle personally, like how much to push. Like we're, you know, having these debates now is like how much do you push things that you want to engender motivation. Like you want, it has to be intrinsic motivation because you're only going to do what you really want to do. Like you're writing, you really want to do and so you're yeah. really into it. And it's like, all right, if they're not into things you think they should be into. Yeah. Do you like, say, what is that? What is that? It's so hard to do, but also I, I imagine not, I mean, my son's not even three yet. So we haven't of course hit this point, but if you have a child who's really into poetry and they, poetry is their life, but you as a parent look at this and say, you're probably never going to make a living off of this. Yeah. What do you do at that point? I don't know. I have no idea what I would do at that point. And my parents didn't do anything. Even when I wanted to be a professional skier, they didn't say anything about, you yeah. can't do this. You're not going to, you're probably not. It was never, never came up. But I don't, I don't know how that, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. That's yeah, you got a few though. years. Yeah. But it <laughs> starts early because you start saying, like, they're getting, starting to go to school and you want them to practice their homework and you want them to yeah, it's, it's, get, it's, be a good student. It's tough. There's part of me that intuitively thinks when I get to that point, you know, 10 years from now, that I'll be a tiger dad. You need to get all A's. You need to study yeah. three hours a night. But there's a part of me that remembers my youth and thinks no one ever did that for me. And I think because of that, that's why I found writing that is – just ingrained in my soul and I love it. It's because I found it on my own. No one said, you need to go do this. You need to go be a doctor. You need to be a lawyer. I just kind of explored until I found what I loved. It's hard to know when you're pushed. Like I had a certain expectation set. Like if you came home with a B, it was like, not, why did you get six A's? It's like, you got a B, yeah. you know? But, and then, you know, you could see when I, different standards held across different people and, and, you know, it's hard to know what got you interested in a certain path and why you got, you know, you could say lucky in certain areas or yeah. what, what cultivated. So it's, it's interesting would, to think about this compounding from a very young age. Yeah. And we both have these, I have a three and a six. So you're, you know, like just right behind. So it's interesting to think about. Yeah. And I even think for writing for me, like I said, it took me probably two or three years before I really enjoyed it. Before that, it was literally just a paycheck and needed a job. Yeah. And I was a financial writer. So even even after I found what I now know today is to be my passion, it took years before of doing it before I really said, wow, this is fun. I really like doing this. So we're, we're talking with Morgan Housel, um, former columnist at The Motley Fool, Wall Street Journal, now a partner at the Collaborative Fund about his career, how he got to where he is, uh, and just some of the background from writing to being, to being private equity. So talk a little bit about just the dynamics at sort of the Motley Fool and then the Wall Street Journal where you're writing. Like how, what were the main topics? We're talking a little bit now about personal finance and growing our kids, but like what, what else did you focus on at uh, at these places? Yeah. So when I started at the Motley Fool in 2007, back then how they structured their editorial was every writer had to have a vertical. 
So I got by default, I didn't pick it. I think it was more or less assigned to me. I was covering banking. And even when I started October 2007, things were still roughly okay. The private debt markets were, were getting, you know, were going haywire, as I talked about. But Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, those guys were not only doing okay, most of them were stocks were at their all time high. But then, as the Motley Fool's kind of banking analyst, as we got around to 2008, like obviously that's the most interesting sector to cover. And I say, yeah, I probably started out covering 20 banks. And by late 2008, there were like seven of them left. They were either like gone out of business or had merged. So that was obviously a really interesting sector to cover. And then I think as an offshoot to 2008, I just got really interested in the behavioral side of investing because it explained that was it was the only explanation for 2008 that made sense to me. Like there was no explanation in 2008 uh, that could be found in an, in an academic textbook with the exception of maybe some stuff from Robert Schiller or someone, but it just defied all conventional financial theory as I had come to know it. The only ex- If you wanted to figure out 2008, you had to take a psychology course on how people think about risk and how people think about, uh, about careers and tail events and whatnot. So that got me interested in behavioral finance. And I had to kind of convince the editors of The Motley Fool that this is the beat that I want to cover. I'm, I don't want to write an article about Bank of America's quarterly earnings. That's not fun to me. But if I can write about, we called it macro back then, um, about the macro economy and which and psychology and history and stuff like that, that's really interesting to me. And I think that's the most important thing around this time. This is like 2008, 2009. And they said, great, let's do it. So that's what started kind of that vertical for me. I've always thought about, I write about the intersection of like investing history and behavioral finance. Just like where those two meet up is what I like and just how people think about risk. Um, so that was kind of what I covered at at the Motley Fool. And I, I kept I kept on that, let's call it beat for most of the 10 years that I was there. And then Wall Street Journal was pretty similar. That was, I'd already kind of established that that's what I write about at the Wall Street Journal. And they had a, a few more guidelines of, you know, it has to be like, it has to have a very clear practical takeaway. Like, like basically I always joke, like the end of every Wall Street Journal article has to say, and therefore you should buy this mutual fund. Like it had to be like a very clear structure. Whereas Molly Fool, I could just kind of say what I wanted to say and be done with it. But that's always kind of what I've, I've covered. And I, I, I don't think I'll ever move from that. I don't see myself as a writer ever moving away from the idea, from the topic of psychology and risk. And it's such a broad topic that there's so much stuff to think about and write about within there. And uh, you brought up Stocks for the Long Run as one of your first books and just connecting a personal story there. Um, you know, Siegel and Schiller went to MIT together and were like best friends at school. Like they were standing in line together on the first day. And I got to see them go on vacation together and get profiled together and be on the stage together. But Siegel actually didn't have behavioral finance in the first two editions of Stocks for the Long Run. So I said to a professor, so influenced by Bob, why haven't you done behavioral finance yet? He's like, you know, that's a good point. So then he let me, that was my first writing wow. with Siegel was writing the chapter on behavioral finance oh, for the cool. third edition can you, in 02. Can you talk just for a minute or so about the the research and putting together all the data for Stocks for the Long Run? So I came in on the third edition. So he had the original 200 years of data. That was before my time. Okay. So there was a guy, Sean Smith, who, who'd done the very, or, well, Sean did a lot of the early work. I I helped him. I kept everything updated and really updated every single chart in the book and then helped him. That was my first writing experience. And then I did help him do everything in the future for investors. So that mm-hmm. was the, you know, a three-year project that basically was tracking the original S&P 500 stocks back to 57, where we followed these 500 original stocks or all their spinoffs. And that was like a multi-year project of 
sort of corporate histories yeah. and mergers and saying, well, if you track these original stocks and you had all these dying sectors, so you had 20% energy that was dying, 20% materials that were dying, and nothing in tech and nothing in healthcare, nothing in financials, which were growing. And you said, well, you held all these dying companies. How did you compare to the actual dynamically updated index? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, how much did you lag? And there actually there's a book by McKinsey, Creative Destruction, why you know you have to get rid of the old and in with the new, right? And that the, they McKinsey had this thing about it. they lagged by 600 basis points or mm-hmm. something like big, and we're like, no, they just got this wrong. Actually, the originals outperformed once the stocks the, that were removed from the index. The original stocks from 1957, these buy and hold things that were dying. You had actually bought and hold. Yeah, just never did most any, passive just, portfolio. Never bought the new stocks. Added. Outperforms the index by, by, the actual, by a significant. It was, it was like by 100 basis points here for 50 years. Which is an interesting, and it, was, and it was like nine of the ten. When we did the book, this was ten years. This was now 15 years ago. Um, nine of the ten sectors. So. Every time S&P would add companies, they would add no energy companies, and then they would add all these energy companies in the 80s during the oil boom. They would add no telecom to the 90s boom, and no tech companies. It's the same over and over. The new companies underperformed the old, and it was this idea that even them as an index committee, momentum following, buying at the highs. And you could say actually now with index tracking flows, some of these effects have been exacerbated even more. And so when the fir- that third edition that I worked with Siwon was when he first started getting a little dissociated with cap weighting, where he started saying... Well, you have this Yahoo impact where they announce they're going to add it. Yahoo, it flies up, then the index funds buy it, and, and they, you know, they get buy it at the highs in mm-hmm. some ways. And so he was becoming more of a value guy sort of when I first met him when I got here in 99, 2000, through that tech bubble. I mean, that was his classic time of thinking away from just cap waiting. But um, it was this, this, the fascinating study of just this growth bias and how people overpay for growth. I'm curious, like a takeaway from that for me – uh, which is it's such a fascinating point, and the takeaway for me would be sit on your hands. Like the temptation to fiddle is going to hurt you over time. So I'm curious how you think about that takeaway as a practitioner at Wisdom Tree. Well, we a lot of our stuff from 13 years ago was value sorting. So if you t- one of the other charts in Siegel's book in that book was if we sorted the S and P every year into quintiles, and you just put the hundred cheapest stocks five quintiles, and the cheapest stocks did outperform by 200, the most expensive underperformed. So you you could still do better than that, in a way, from these value totes. Now, from we, when we wrote the book to today, you've had this big growth market again. Mm-hmm. And so then the question mm-hmm. is, well, what has something fundamentally changed? And this is, I'm curious on from your venture stages, is the world different? Is growth going to beat value? Like, is there no longer this value effect? Um, but it is... No, you could perfectly say I could just buy 500 stocks today, never touch it for the next 50 years. And from the research from that book, that would be a reasonable strategy. Mm-hmm. Never sell anything. You don't need mm-hmm. any active manager. You don't need any tilts. Just buy 500 stocks roughly equally weighted, you know, more than the cap weighting. And the equally weighted probably would have done better. That You have a momentum effect of the winners will become more over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can do that. It's a reasonable no, strategy. No one does it. No one does that. I've seen a few fun. Like I think there's one fund there's like that has something. That's I forget something what it's like called, that? but there was a fund that does something like that. I think they bought a couple hundred stocks in the '60s or something, and there's literally been zero turnover since then. And they market. There's been, I think, even def- there have been some things. But imagine an asset management company said, "We're not going to do anything. We're just going to buy a basket of." I mean, it's so telling too it. that that book, that finding, the future of investors, whatnot. A lot of people read that book, and a lot of people agreed with his findings. And how many people put it into practice? It's like the gap between – I don't think there's any other field where that's the case. Like in a medical journal, when there's a big breakthrough 
doctors read it and they change their practice. No, I mean, that's some exaggerated. Of course, there's some lag and whatnot and old habits die hard. But in investing, it's not that old habits die hard. It's that new discoveries are just ignored. And like it's, and I think that to me gets back to like why I like the psychological side of the behavioral. And the behavioral. It, it goes side. to like why do you think when people push you and say, well, why would value continue to work over growth? And it does get. I mean, I I, th- I do think the best explanation is this behavioral explanation that people are innately driven for the sexy new story. Yeah. Now I, I think some of it from the fund manager's perspective is rational in that the fund manager has to run a business. And to run a business, you need to attract capital. And investors are not going to put up with a fund that has a 10-year lagging period. So it's very easy, I think, from, for an academic to look at 100 years of data and say, look, if you had just done, if you just did this, you would have earned great returns. But from the practitioner standpoint, they would say, no, that would never work because you see this period here where the strategy underperformed for 10 years, I would have been out of business. Investors yeah. would have withdrawn all their money and I would have been out on the street. Yeah. So from a practical standpoint, they kind of say, I kind of have to chase what's hot just to keep my fund in business. And, you know, of course, there are fund managers that buy the hype themselves and really believe in the hype themselves. But there's such a gap between good investing techniques and running an investment business. I think that, to me, is one of the fundamental parts of, of behavioral finance. Like, why is behavioral finance such a big issue? These are really smart people running the funds. It's not that they're it's not that they have are just overwhelmed by biases, although of course everyone is. It's just it's the business of running an investing business is very difficult. Is there what do you think about personal as people try? You're saying people don't take this advice. Like how do you do you see trends in the way? I mean, we're certainly seeing in asset management. We're seeing the growth of ETFs that I, you know, I do a lot in in that space. You're seeing low fee beta just dramatically surging. You, you, you the question on higher active type managers. Like, where, just where do you see people and evaluate the landscape from an outsider's perspective? I think obviously the rise of let's call it passive. I know that's a debate. It's not really passive, but let's call it passive. People know what that means. The rise of passive, I think, uh, is a is an improvement on old behavioral flaws. One of my favorite statistics from the financial crisis was August 2011, where some people will remember in 2011, there was kind of what people thought was going to be the next leg of the financial crisis. Markets fell about 20%. Things started getting really ugly. This is when Europe started coming into view. It was a really bad time. And in August 2011, 98% of Vanguard investors made didn't make a single change to their accounts. 98, like they didn't make a single, they just kept dollar cost averaging, just kept going through. And I think it's easy to ignore if you watch CNBC or if you're just paying attention to market volatility. It's easy to ignore how much capital out there is actually behaving very well. It's people in their 401ks that have $200 withdrawn from every paycheck every other Friday that goes into a low-cost index fund and they never touch it. That's a lot of money out there. And that's a fairly new development if you're comparing it to you know how it used to work 30 years ago where all investing was done through your guy at Charles Schwab or at Merrill Lynch who like had a new hot stock for you. The way that's done now, and it's literally trillions of dollars moving into it, is so much more conducive to good behavior. It's just pushing people in a slightly more reasonable direction than it used to be. It's never going to be the case that you've cured bad behavior. I think almost by definition, like the reason that markets boom and crash is because people have bad behavior. So it's like there's, it's always gonna it's never gonna be a case where there's a market cash crash and everyone behaves well because the reason the market is crashing is because people don't behave well. But it's getting it's getting better. 
But, you know, as someone who writes about bad behavior for a living, I think I have good job security. There's always going to be plenty to write about. How, what do you think about today? If you looked at today's market environment, how much is is this chasing? How much of it is, you know, is, is rational? Um, you got the people who think the markets are super expensive. Do you have a view from just where you sit on the overall macro level markets? I, I remember from a macro perspective, when did the CAPE ratio, cyclically adjusted PE ratio, start becoming really popular in let's in the mainstream. From my view, it was like 2010. And that's when people are like, capes getting really expensive. Stocks are we're back in a bubble. Even though the 2009 was just a year ago, stocks are like bad returns coming up. That was like 16,000 Dow points ago. And <laughs> but and here's the thing. It's yes. easy to poke fun at that. Yes. But if you go back and read their stuff, a lot of it's convincing. These are these are these smart people pointing out that the CAPE ratio was well above its historic average in 2010. Cliff Asnes, Rob Arnod, Kieran right. Grantham, right? You yeah, got a these lot are of people. smart people. These are not these are not kooks just trying to get some attention on TV. These are smart people. So when you look at today, if the question is like, are stocks overvalued? Is it getting crazy? My gut response is to say yes. But my secondary, much more important response is, but who knows when that ends? Because yeah. I would have said the same thing in tw- in 2010, and certainly in 2012, 2013. If you and I are having this conversation, I would have said, "Yeah, it's getting it's getting nutty out there." But even 2013 was what 8,000 points ago or something. So I think you can measure everything about markets except when behavior is going to change. And the key driver of PE ratios over time is not necessarily interest rates or earnings for growth. It's optimism and pessimism, and that to me is not something that you can tame in a statistic. When people say, like, what, you know, where is the market going to trade for five years from now, 10 years from now? Obviously, that's anchored by valuation multiples. And valuation multiples are just a reflection of what kind of mood people are in. And how the hell are you going to ch- predict what mood people are in over time? It's a very difficult thing to do. And so that's like the part of investing that I think you can't really quantify. But to me, it's one of the most important parts of investing, which is just to say, is it crazy today? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Returns going forward, you know, probably aren't going to be as good as they were in the past 10 years or last 20 or 30 years. But who knows what that means in practical terms for the next five or 10 years? We're going to have to take a short break, but we're going to be continuing our conversation with Morgan Housel, partner at the Collaborative Fund. You're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the One School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. In the studio with me for the, sh- the full show today is Morgan Housel, partner at the Collaborative Fund. He writes for the firm's blog. He talks about markets, investing. And we've talked a lot about your background, Morgan, in the first part of the show. Um, but I want to talk, and we just, at the end of the first discussion, we're talking about valuations and this, the speculative spirit that we have in the market today and just people, very positive outlook on growth. And one of that, you could say a lot of companies are not going public. There's sort of a private investing. There's actually a lot of people talking about the dearth of public companies that everybody's going private. You guys are, maybe talk a little bit. We haven't talked at all about the Collaborative Fund. Talk about what their mission is, what you're doing there, and and just what what they're focused on on the private side. Yeah. So, I I mean, I think just to compare it to the public markets, what goes on in private markets, I've always thought it's, 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 if you compare the two, everything's the same and everything's different. The fundamentals of all investing, like the Venn diagram, there's quite a bit of overlap. You're trying to buy a diverse portfolio of good companies at good prices and hold them for a long period of time. Whether it's an S&P index fund or what we do in venture capital, like that, that much stays the same. Private markets are obviously very different because every company that you own, every position you, that you have, you have to hunt for and then win. 
Whereas in public markets, you just have a universe at your disposal. You can just go do whatever you want yeah. with it. That's a big difference in, 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 uh, in private markets. But other than that, you know, we're, a, we're an early stage venture capital fund, which means we're backing companies that are, 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 you know, have a range from two people in a dorm room with an idea to a, a company that is, that is fairly, fairly established and you know, could otherwise, to your point, could in a different era be a public company. So there's a big, a big range of what venture capital is. And that's really changed a lot in the last couple of years where in any other era – you you went uh, you know you you raised some venture capital fund uh, funds to kind of get you going to kind of you know to move out of the garage into a proper office, but very quickly you became a profitable company with good unit economics and positive free cash flow, and then you went public when you were still fairly young. You're still what we would call today a startup, but you went public back then, and it's obviously changed tremendously. In a short period of time, in the last fifteen years or so, where there's so much money in venture capital and private equity. That a lot of these funds are, when they are young companies, they're raising so much money that they don't have to become profitable overnight like they did in the past. Because because before thirty years ago, if you raised venture capital funds, maybe you raised you know five hundred grand, which was enough to buy you an office and some machinery and some rack servers that they used to use back then. But you had to become a real business pretty quickly. Whereas now a young startup can raise five million bucks, which gives them years and years to just figure stuff out, play with their products. There's some good to that. There's a lot of bad to that as well. But another offshoot of it is uh, not only can they just kind of uh, play around for a couple of years just building their product rather than building a real solid business, but they can just remain private companies for much, much longer than they could have before. So you know, in any other era, Uber and Lyft and Airbnb and Palantir and SpaceX all would have been public companies years ago. Yeah. And now they're still quote unquote venture backed companies. It's crazy to think of Uber as a venture backed company. Like and it's I, not a by any definition it's not a startup. And I it's, see Lyft on your guys uh, investment team. Yeah, yeah, so we invested in Lyft in, in 2011. It was called Zimride back then. It was a very different company. But um, yeah, so like uh, the, you know, what's interesting is that in those different eras when Microsoft or Dell or Cisco went public, the vast vast majority of the money that was the value that was created out of those companies accrued to public markets market investors maybe in percentage terms the vcs got the most but now you have this weird era where not only in percentage terms but even in raw dollar terms a lot more of the money is accruing to private market investors which are backed by pension funds and endowments not necessarily mom and pop investors no in the i think about that a lot i mean we do a lot of advisor solutions work and trying to work with ras across the country and trying to build a platform and i think a lot well if one of the services you need is to try to help bring access to those private markets more like cause it, it tends to be in these bigger check sizes where you got to be an accredited investor and yeah it's you know, there's, there's and, some funds like fidelity that within a public mutual fund are, are investing in uber and whatnot so there's some of it there, but it's a it's a problem. And then, of course, yeah. when you get into private markets, just because of uh, let's call it custom, but also it's just much more expensive to to interact in private markets. The fees are are, are just a completely different universe yes. compared to the. It's like it's not even comparable. So once you start getting mom and pop investors in there to gain exposure to some of these companies, like it can get like it's just a very different like the mix between there is it, it's a long bridge to to clear. And it seems like another market ripe for change, right? In in some ways in terms of just having more access vehicles that I think so, can, yeah. can change from the pure active 
you know, high fee carry type models towards sort of broader portfolios of these. But then you're saying like you got to hunt for the deals. Like you got to hunt every. I think this is, is what I underestimated the most because my background was, even though I was a writer, it was it was really centered around public markets. What I underestimated the most when I started Collaborative Fund two years ago is the extent to which every deal not only has to be hunted for, but then even when you find it, you battled did. out yeah. to win. I mean, could you imagine if you, as, as a public markets investor, you uh, you had to spend six months looking for Apple, and then when you found it, you, you had to fight off other investors. And then after six months of fighting and fifty grand in legal fees, you lost it. Like it's a completely different game to play, and it makes it so that it's it's you can't diversify to the level and as quickly as you would need to for mom and pop investors to be in it. And another offshoot of that. Uh, you know, having to fight for everything. Just the lockup period for venture and VC funds is ten, sometimes fifteen years. But from your Just behavioral perspective, is better actually in some ways. I think it is. That, yeah. It's really interesting working for uh, a private market fund where we don't. There's no such thing as month to month, quarter to quarter, year to year to year liquidity. Whereas any other mutual fund, 2008 rolls around, your paid your money, your capital's out the door. It's yeah. gone tomorrow. You wake up and you check your email, and there's a hundred million of redemptions, and you're. It's, tough to run a business that way. You have time private to markets run. get away from that. But there's another side of that. In the private markets, you basically raise money, raise a new fund every four or five years. You better hope that when your four or five years comes around, the markets, you know, you're kind of in a favorable window. Yeah. So just you kind of, you most of the time you're avoiding the need to think about liquidity. But when you need to think about it, you better make sure it works. So how many funds is Collaborative Fund on now? We just raised our fourth fund. Fourth fund. Yep. And what, what are the size, typical sizes of these funds? So fund one was, uh, you know, so Craig Shapiro started Collaborative Fund in 2010. Fund one was kind of his friends and family, and that was an $8 million fund. Um, so more or less like a, like a large angel fund writing checks of 75K or 100K. That was a fund that invested in Lyft. Wow. Uh, fund two was a $35 million well, sure. fund. Did pretty well, yeah. <laughs> Fund two was a $35 million fund. That was when some, some institutions came in, some high net worth individuals. Uh, fund three was about $70 bucks, And we just raised fund four, which is $100 bucks. Very nice. Interesting in public markets too, particularly in, in seed. For any other part of the investing spectrum, $100 bucks is not that much money. If you're talking about public mutual fund or whatnot. But $100 bucks in venture capital is hard to deploy because we're writing million-dollar checks, roughly, and every deal has to be hunted for in one. So to deploy a hundred million bucks is hard. Hundred conversations, hundred conversations, and then how many hundred fail uh, exactly. So it takes it takes years to deploy that much money. Yeah. Whereas in public markets, you can deploy a hundred million bucks by snapping your fingers. So some of the themes. It's sort of interesting looking at portfolio companies today. Um, one of the companies I go to all the time, Sweet Greens. They got places all here in Philadelphia yep. downtown. In the suburbs, my kids love sweet greens. They have the little kids' plates there for them. They, they love it. Good Talk company. about the thematics of – and so food seems to be a consistent one. There's sweet greens. There's blue bottle coffee. There's some other food ones. So how to talk about sort of this consumer brand or, or foods angle that you guys are doing. Yeah, I think just for the most part, from a real you know, 30,000-foot level, consumers as a result of the information age and in particular people like you and I who more or less grew up with information – at our fingertips in a way that our parents did not, are just much more aware of the world around us, particularly when it comes to how we spend our money. And in previous eras, previous generations, and I think this trend has been going on for hundreds of years, a lot of what happened in business was out of sight, out of mind. Where's your food made? I don't know. I don't care. Who makes it? I don't know. I don't care. What are the ingredients? Like, what's it made out of? I don't know. I don't really care. 
And now I think just the generation that grew up with the idea that all information should be uh, open and accessible and free is just become much more picky with what they're willing to spend their money on. And they want to spend their money on products and companies that they really kind of down the stack agree with and align with. And that's been much more, that's kind of the shift from, let's call it McDonald's to Chipotle of just kind of the same food, or let's say Taco Bell to Chipotle, more or less the same food, but one is done with cleaner, healthier ingredients, just with the overall ethos that people want to be involved with. And that's, I think that's kind of the theory behind Sweet Green and Blue Bottle as well. It's like, if you just make a company that really focuses on brand and ingredients and just puts forth forth an ethos that consumers say, I want to be involved with that. That's where a lot of the competitive advantage in consumer companies comes from these days. Are you a big coffee guy? Like, like close to an addiction. Close to addiction. Have you done the La Colombe, like, uh, oh, yeah. cold brew in yeah. a can? That's pretty good. It's good. It's good stuff. I'm not, I don't like coffee in a can though. Have you tried, I don't want to take this in a different direction, but I forget <laughs> what the company is, but they have wine in a can. I have not tried that. Don't. <laughs> and here's the thing this is why I don't like coffee in a can I'm sure it's good wine or decent wine yeah. but once you put it in an aluminum can f- forget about it I'm, I'm going to have to try the blue bottle I'm going to have to find out how to support you guys there <laughs> I have not done it yet but uh, La Colombe's a local Philly guy I actually sat next to him on the on a plane coming back is to Chicago right? wow. he was a really interesting guy actually that I used to try to get him on a show Cool. Um, but he um, the other food theme that I want to get onto here because Today, you know, last night I was doing research on your portfolio companies, and I saw something that, that struck like, my memory of being at a restaurant, seeing something, the Impossible Burger. I was like, where have I seen the Impossible Burger? And then I started researching a little bit, and then I saw it's not available in stores. So it was at a menu. I recently had been at a restaurant and seen it. And I saw also that you guys were investors in, in a previous one, the Beyond Burger. Yep. And so, the, again, this, port, this theme of... of of food and, and I started looking in Philadelphia and there was actually a burger place downtown that had both the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger. And we have in something Philadelphia here, the Pats and Gino's cheesesteak. You know, everybody goes to Pats and Gino's, you go next door, you get yeah. the cheesesteak with whiz, with the provolone. I'm a Pats guy, but you know, people have their favorites. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I'm going to go do the Beyond versus Impossible test for lunch. Today okay. So lunch. people don't know, these are meat-free burgers but I wouldn't call them veggie burgers because it's the first few companies that are using pretty legit science to try to make something that actually tastes like a hamburger, whereas Boca Burgers and whatnot didn't even try. Yeah, not even close. What do you think about Beyond? So tell me, so I'm just, I've got a, a, on the Beyond Burgers fact card, they show, um, now I don't know that this is enough burger for me, but I think it was like a three ounce piece. And they showed protein 20 grams versus 19 for a real burger. Iron 25 for the Beyond, 12 for iron. Basically, a little bit less fat, no cholesterol, similar levels of fat, basically the same calories. Yeah. Basically looks identical but better. Yes. On the Beyond Burger versus... Just just on paper, you're saying. On paper. Just in terms of nutritional value. Yes. It's got the same amount of protein, no cholesterol kind of thing. And what do you think about then the Impossible Burger? What Have you had both of these? I've had both, yeah. I've had both once. Okay. Both The investments were made before I, I, I joined, so I didn't have much uh, insight into the diligence. But I've tried both of them. And here's how I would describe it. If it was a blind taste test, and it was in burger form, bun, lettuce, tomato, mustard, and it was blind, I would say, this is a dry burger. But this is a burger. That's what I would say. With like, there's no other veggie burger in which that's the case that you would actually you could actually fool someone with it. Which one is that? 
Uh, both, I would both say. The, the bo- I think they both fall into that. Mm. I think I think the Impossible Burger is probably closer to like this actually tastes like a burger, not just in taste but in texture. Yes. It's a little bit drier than a normal burger, but it tastes like a burger. And I'm a real meat guy. Like I like I love grilling steaks. I mean it's one of my, I am very snobby about the steaks. Yeah. Like I, I don't like a lot of steaks you know, but yeah. And, and I, I liked the Impossible Burger. Did you eat it plain, or did you put it in a burger? No, it was bun, a full, lettuce, tomato. It was, I, it was See, a that's setup. important. If you just if you just setup. if you just ate it by a fork, you would not. You probably would not be fooled. You would probably say this is not a burger. But once you cover it in any other stuff, it's easy to get past you. Yeah, it was. It seemed legit. Yeah, I would order more of those. I would get. You know, and it's I, important because there are there is actually a big segment of the population that would say I want to be vegetarian, or they would say I want to eat healthier. I want, that's a big, like, I'm not, I want to, I just want a healthier diet, but I'm not willing to give up what I love. And that's what we love about these companies is that they're basically telling consumers, you can have your cake and eat it too. You don't have to give up your great burgers, but you can give up your cholesterol. You can give up the slaughterhouses if you, yeah. know, you like, that's important for consumers who, again, have shifted their views and shifted their wallets towards companies that they want to align their values with. It, I asked them which one was more popular because I told them I was doing this little taste test. Yeah. And they did say Impossible was winning out because it is newer. I guess Beyond has been yeah. a little bit older in the market. So yeah. I, I'm assuming the Impossible is in your latest fund, Beyond's in an earlier fund. There, there are some different funds, yeah. But, but um, And there's also this other segment that we've looked at quite a bit, haven't made uh, many significant investments in it, but the companies that are making real meat in a, in a Petri dish. Mm-hmm. Like they're actually growing cultured beef, but there's no cow involved. That to me, if you can get that at scale, like that to me is a like astronomical opportunity. Because how many consumers out there are saying, I don't want to be a vegetarian. I want capital M meat. But slaughterhouses are not something that I'm okay. Like that mm. morally bothers me. If you could give them lab-grown meat, that has to be a massive proportion of the population if I you mean, can make that at scale. E- even the Impossible Burger talks a little bit about growing some of this H-E-M-E. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I'm pretty sure it's Hemi. Hemi. Yeah. That they talk about growing this Hemi that is some thing that both animals and plants have yeah. that that makes it really get the texture of the grilling texture. Yeah. Now, yeah. what do you think? Now, there's this whole backlash in Europe about GMOs, genetically modified and they're talking about that. This Hemi is some kind of genetically yeah. modified thing. But, you know, in reality, do I really worry about it being genetically modified if that's just accelerating evolution over time? Like, do you personally worry about that? No, personally, no. Not not in the slightest. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't think anything's all natural. These, like, I, I, I'm not a GMO worrier, but I would put myself in the, in the category of I, I don't think about it or don't worry about it because I don't have enough knowledge to have – to have an idea one way or another. Hemi was approved by the FDA, had to be approved by the FDA. Um, and f- from my personal consumption point, I just kind of take their word for it that it's going to be okay. I don't, I don't have enough scientific background to understand it one way or another. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. This is Morgan Housel, partner at the Collabra Fund, former author at the Wall Street Journal, The Motley Fool. So how do you think, so so as, as just a, a, a statement on retail, getting beyond my food taste test stores here, but, you know, so the Impossible Burger is not available in stores yet. They're only going through these restaurants. And what is the natural evolution of a business like that? Is their ideal, their ideal to, to me has to get on Amazon's platform and the Amazon Whole Foods platform. That's yeah. clearly what they're trying to do, I would assume. Yeah. I mean, I mean, kind of where it started was high-end restaurants, uh, particularly because because a lot of these companies, the, the products are not 
cheap because they you know yeah. there's a lot of science behind them before they scale they're not cheap so start at high end restaurants and you kind of move down to mid tier restaurants and then My grocery stores were like twelve ninety nine yeah they're, they yeah they're, yeah they're not cheap but then you can move into grocery stores after that and that's really for these companies that's really where the big market is. And so Amazon, I got to ask. So, it's got to be Amazon, though, right? Because Amazon everything is eventually. Everything. I've always I've always said in twenty years the entire U.S. economy is going to be Amazon, and all of it's going to be owned by Vanguard. That's all that's going to be left. It's going to be two companies <laughs> in the two whole world. monopolies. We find <laughs> sometimes so, you need Fourth of July Schwartz household barbecue. Is there going to be an Impossible Burger on the grill next year if it's available? Um, there would be there would be some buyers of that. Okay, I mean, I, it'll be for my personal barbecue. It'll be probably some steak and some burgers, but. I would I would offer that, and wh- I think what's cool about it too is that this is this is version one. Yeah, think about the, these companies in fifteen years; it's going to change the market. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely eat it. I mean, I, I can see, I could see ha- reducing my meat intake because I eat a lot of meat. So yeah. I could see having this as a re- very reasonable option, um, cycling it in. Yep. Um, wh- where do you see? We talked a little bit about this. Any other portfolio companies, you know, themes that you guys are investing around, things that you think people should be thinking about for their own investment? I think that thing that I just described of consumers just being much more aware and having more information than they did in previous generations is kind of the the centered thesis of how we invest. Um, It's, you know, and I think every generation goes through that. Every generation going back many, many generations just becomes a little bit more aware of the rest of the world and a little more empathetic to others as all the generations go by. And I think we've really reached a point with kind of your and my generation that grew up for most of our at least young adulthood with a lot of information at our fingertips and just understanding how the world works and just putting up with less BS than other generations did. That to me, I think, is a big part of the growth of passive investing is that in previous generations, people would would fall for the their their quote unquote, their guy, their stockbroker who had a new pitch for them of a new hot company. That was all. And now in the past 20 years, people just say, I don't believe that anymore. I don't trust you anymore. This all seems like a gimmick to me. I'd much rather go in a passive index fund. They just have more information now than they did in the past. And that to me, I think extends to a lot of other industries. I I saw, so in this related spirit of of health, so you have something on heartbeat. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that particular investment on Mm -hmm. them. Um, a lot, so it, it does seem a lot of this health-oriented mission. Is that something you just see as America has a health problem? I think not only America has a health problem, but it's an industry that is very much entrenched in old norms. Um, someone made a statement a couple of years ago that was really changing for me, which is if you want to uh, learn a bunch of information about Coca-Cola – you can go online. Their 10Ks are free. The 10Ks going back 20 years. You can learn all kinds of information about Coca-Cola, deep understanding of their inner workings. Most people have no idea what their own blood pressure is and couldn't find it if they needed to. Even if they called their doctor, their medical records are spread out among different doctors. People can know more information about Goldman Sachs and Coca-Cola than they know about themselves. And the tracking devices, I mean, it's got to be getting infinitely better. It's getting better, but it's still a a fraction. The tracking devices can't track that much. Most people don't wear them. And even after you wear it, what do you do with the data? Is it just like a like a something that's neat? You just track yeah. your steps and that's cool, or do you actually use that share that information with your doctor to track health risks and whatnot? It's like it's in its infancy right now, and I think that's something that thirty years will look back 
and think about how little people understood about their own health as something that made no sense to people. That in the information age, people don't know what their blood pressure is. That's crazy. I, I was uh, our friend Patrick's podcast. I listened to the Peter Atia one. He's got me following his work and yeah. the fact that he has a glucose monitor. It's like wow, that's an intense. That's next level. But maybe in twenty years, it'll be, it'll be non-invasive or so minorly invasive that you don't notice, and everyone will have that. I would, I would, I started thinking about should I go get one and should I start tracking how I, you know, how my stuff spikes and. I think there's a danger in this. It's almost like the people that watch CNBC all day. Like that's probably bad for your portfolio. If you're tracking your glucose every minute. Yeah. How much How much more, like, unnecessary intervention is that going to lead to, too? So there's two sides of it. Of course. That is true. Like, being blissfully unaware is good most of the time. Um, so we're in our final two-minute countdown. Um, we've covered a lot of stuff about all the different things you're doing. But any um, things you want people to take away from all the, all the work that you're doing at the Collaborative Fund? I would say just, a, you know, what anchors how I think, how I've always thought about investing. And this is true for Collaborative Fund and private markets, too, is What's your what's your edge? I think this is a question that every investor should ask themselves. And I think most people don't know the answer to that question, or if they did try to answer it, they would come up with some iteration of, we're really smart. And I think intelligence is not an edge anymore, with some very rare cases. And to me, and of course, this is maybe talking my own book, because this is all I, I write about, but behavior and time horizon, to me, is the last remaining edge. And it's one of the only edges that I think most people can actually control to a significant extent to make it a legitimate edge. If you can keep your head on a little bit straighter, breathe a little deeper, and take a longer-term view than the average person, you'll do better than them over time. And that's something that most people can actually do versus saying, I'm going to make a better decision. I'm smarter than other people. I can make a better model than other people. I think it's very difficult to do these days. And where can people keep up with your your writing and health and will they see Contributing. Yeah, so I, I write about once a week. Most of everything I do, everything I write, and everything I think about is on Twitter. My handle is just my name, Morgan Housel. Very good. Morgan, thanks for coming to Philadelphia and coming to our studio. Thanks, Jeremy. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks for our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno, our producer, Patty Hall. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 